Hello and welcome back to the Wannabe Inklings podcast. On the last uh, episode, we finished talking about limited atonement. And on today's episode, we will dive right into the next piece of Tulip, uh, Irresistible Grace. So, Dusty. All right. So, Irresistible Grace, again, is one of those monikers that get picked apart. It is definitely not a perfect description of this doctrine, but it works for me. For sure. I think it. I think it just conveys the idea that when God decides to extend saving and atoning mercy and grace to you, you will not ultimately be able to resist it. There are a few caveats to that of course, um, but the overall point is if God intends to save you, you will be saved. Um, and that is to maximize and make much of his sovereignty, his ability to save. There's nowhere in that process where we can interfere and jeopardize God's plan to save not only us but the world. Um, we've talked in the last one about what that means when we say the world. Um, every tribe, tongue, and nation, every person, um, every people group will be represented around the throne. That's a guarantee given in Scripture. It's presented as fact. And so this really the the certainty with which scripture presents these things is I think the most profound and the strongest argument for this as a doctrine because to believe otherwise would be to put an asterisk on all of these promises of scripture to say maybe Maybe every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented around the throne. Maybe Jesus will be the light of the world. Maybe he will save us. Maybe. Right. And I feel like if this isn't the case, then it really just diminishes Jesus by and large. Because what's the point of even coming and telling people to turn and worship to him and worship him and trust him as Lord and Savior if as their Lord and Savior he can't fully save them or there's a chance that they might slip away and he's only Savior and title but not in reality one two like like what you're saying it that's just not how you know that's not how the scripture presents any of this you know the scripture without I mean obviously it all these doctrines are based in the scripture so we find all of their basis in that but I'm just talking about just I mean when Jesus talks about you know these people are mine and the Father's given to me and no one can take them out of my hand and all of that like he has given them to me well if if his grace isn't ultimately irresistible well did he Jesus you know did he really give them to you or it, could you might not be able to I mean it and so the Bible just doesn't speak in verbiage 
like, I mean, it just doesn't describe anything related to salvation in that way or, or with those terms. It's always very, these, this is a sure thing. Right. And so it's natural that, I mean, like what Dusty was saying in the beginning, sometimes people, you know, have take issue with this, but it's like much of the other points, it doesn't, ultimately I don't, I can't, I don't, I don't know, I don't get where, you know, it's coming from because it seems so natural. Right. I would probably say I feel like this one people like a lot more than the first three, at least the idea of it. Oh, God has me, he's never letting me go, and, you know, but, and then, in the way that they describe salvation, they're completely going against this idea as a whole. Well, let's just take a look at what the scripture says, and of course, as, as I said earlier, a few episodes back, I think, or maybe we just said this before we started the recording, but I don't want to proof text this to death to death of course if if we believe these things it's because we've been shown them in scripture so I could cite many many passages to support these doctrines and smarter people than me have written books doing exactly that so <clears throat> that's out there if, if, if you just need to see that and I encourage anyone who's coming to these uh, doctrines for the first time to do the legwork to go and search out the scriptures, study in, in the original language. The proof texts and the lists are they're they're plenty. They're easy to find. But this one in particular it it just resonates with me. It the the first time that I read it, it never left me. So this is in John chapter six and some background for this. I refer to this often. In fact, I may have referred to it in an earlier episode. I'm not sure. Um, feels like I talk about it every day. But an earlier um, kind of the scene before this scene that we're in is Jesus has just fed all of these people. He's fed a great crowd of people and he, as he often does, kind of snuck off by himself. And so he went across the lake and they all fell asleep because they were full, their bellies were full, um, and they just fell asleep. He snuck away. But then when they woke up, of course, they were hungry again. And they went looking for him because that's where they got their last meal from, so they were hoping to squeeze out another one from him. But they went to him very, very piously, very pretentiously, you know, calling him rabbi, calling him teacher. But he saw right through that. And he said, Let's see, where do I pick up? You know, they're hungry. And Jesus, like he often does, turned that around and he starts talking about um, a different kind of bread the bread from heaven. Um, and of course, they said, Well, give us this bread. This is what we want, what you're talking about. And he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now just to just as a reminder, we see those words whoever. So that's a, a very broad net. Whoever comes to me. Uh, whoever believes. But that it's still a net, it's still a limit. 
whoever comes to me, whoever believes. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So here's a group of people who are standing right in front of Jesus. If anyone could believe in the Son of God, they have just witnessed a miracle. They are staring God in the faith in the in the face. <laughs> in the faith. They are staring God in the face. And they totally don't get it at all. They think he's just delaying their breakfast. I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And if you read further down, he kind of circles around that point a couple more times, just in case it wasn't clear. There are people that the Father has given to Jesus to save. And all of those people will come to him to be saved. Everyone who looks on him and believes will be saved. Those are definite terms. And he's saying that in contrast to these people who are right there in front of him. He has told them, he's given them the invitation they hadn't written just as I am yet <laughs> but if it had been that's where it would have been played he had given them the invitation he had invited them to follow him he had just done a miracle right in front of them they were only going to him in the first place flocking to him because of the things that they were that they had already heard about him that they had already heard him teaching and yet, after all of that, they could not believe. They couldn't believe. They could not acknowledge him truly as Lord. And I'm careful with the terms there. We talk about making Jesus Lord. That's not how lords work. He is their Lord. But the problem was, they could not recognize that. That happens later on. Or earlier on actually <clears throat> when he talks about Abraham and he talks about the faith that Abraham had in him and that blows their mind because they're like here's he's just a man this is just a man that we're talking to a cool guy he's he's pretty cool God seems to like him a whole lot but I don't think he should be talking about Abraham serving him and being excited about the day of the Lord so after all of that, these are people who could not believe. And that is held in contrast in this passage to the people that will believe. And Jesus makes that about him because our salvation is not about us, it's about him. The story of grace is about the giver of grace, not the recipient of grace. 
And so in that story, here is an exchange between God the Father and God the Son for the eternal glory of God. That God the Father takes these reprobates and gives them to Christ for Him to be their Lord. And in doing so, by extension, to save all of humankind, to redeem fallen man. This is an exchange made between God the Father and Christ the Son. Which is mirrored in the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Which, not to get too much into covenant theology there, that's for another day. But we're reminded in, I think it's Galatians, somewhere in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters, that the promise that God makes to Abraham is not ultimately to Abraham and all of his children, but to one child in particular. He picks on that word, he says, I'm referring to offspring, not to offsprings. Talking about Jesus. So this whole deal is about something taking place between God the Father and Jesus. So the arrogance of us to presume that we could somehow interrupt that connection with our stubbornness. Or, what kind of idiot must we think God is to hinge all of that on our own stubbornness? These are questions we have to wrestle with if we don't accept this doctrine. We either believe that God has determined to save a group of people and he will do it. And in that salvation it will of course result in those people bearing fruit, walking in peace, joy, and righteousness. It will result in their lives being transformed. We're not talking about people who get saved and have no idea that that's ever happened to them. There will be fruit. Right. So, I know that people who hold to these doctrines sometimes get a bad rap for that. We're not talking about the frozen chosen here who, no matter what they ever do in their life, that's news to them. They stand before the pearly gates and have their name read off and they're like, sweet <laughs> like winning the lottery that that's not what scripture portrays but it's certainly not the other way if you don't hold to this doctrine then in some form or another you are believing ultimately that your salvation is up to you now of course a good studious bible believing christian who is choking on this doctrine would say something to the effect of yes God extends his grace to us and it is a free gift of grace to us but we have to accept it just like a gift if I give you a gift you have to reach out and take it and God would not impede upon our free will because that's his respect towards us let's think about that for a minute what kind of respect is that? Right. Well, first off, 
we they use terms like savior. Like what kind of savior is about? Hey, do you want to be saved? Here's my hand. If you no, oh, okay, okay, I'll, I'll leave. You know, <laughs> and there's just no kind of um. So like, and I don't know what kind of like using that or like the savior starts to pull them up and I, I you know I changed my mind okay and just lets them go and I'm imagining like somebody hanging off the side of a cliff and they just let them go and they fall like that's that's not a savior that's no that's not how saving somebody person. works exactly yeah it's it's the opposite of a savior and I get where this philosophy comes from as a counselor that mentality is actually important because we talk about codependence in relationships and people who are the rescuers and yes there are moments when we say even I in a counseling relationship will say I can't do this for you I can show you the way I can show you strategies and techniques but I can't do this for you you have to want it and you have to take it the rest of the way that is absolutely true in human relationships. But this is not a human relationship that we're talking about. I, I say that in my counseling sessions or I encourage that in human relationships with one another because we are only human. I cannot reach into your brain and make you do something even if it is for your benefit. And so it's pointless for me to try. It just makes me and you both frustrated. I don't have that ability. But we're not talking about another human that's saving us. And we're also not talking about someone who's trying to quit smoking or someone who's trying to pay off their debt. This is not just life and death but eternal life and eternal death that we're talking about here. And this is the one who has the ability to save us, the only one. We have to be very clear about what Scripture says about this. There is only one name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. Paraphrasing that, I think, but that's, but that's the point. There is only one way to be saved and that way we are fortunate is all-powerful he is sovereign none of that rests on us if it did it wouldn't really be salvation it would be help but again we've kind of built a case already if we believe as scripture says that we are totally and completely depraved then what kind of help would that be? Because we know, according to Scripture, there is no part of us that reaches out for God. So, this particular doctrine obviously runs, and we've kind of already mentioned this, but it, it pretty well makes a head-on collision with human free will, right? And so entire books have been written about, you know, investigating that that issue with how can God be a hundred percent sovereign, not necessarily God be a hundred percent sovereign, because I think anybody who would deny reformed doctrines or reform, or, you know, this particular doctrine, 
um, would not describe it that, that way. They would not say that, you know, God's not sovereign, but essentially you're kind of saying that God's not sovereign without saying that. But they would say if he, if he were to be the one that's in complete control of it, um, then, and it doesn't depend on us, then one, they would say, you know, that makes us robots, right? And so how does God, how can God be, get glory from that? And then it also is the problem because then you get into, okay, well, does that mean that God, God's at fault? How can I be, you know, how am I responsible for it if I'm not the one that ultimately accepts that gift or whatever? And I, I don't necessarily know enough to really get into all of that. I think we can kind of get into that a little bit. But the problem is, is like what you're saying already, that you can't make the argument at least not biblically you can't really make the argument that we have the even if it was that we had to reach out and extend you know we had to reach out and, and take that gift that's been extended to us you really can't make that argument because we are depraved like our will is not really a there is no human free will ultimately because our will is in bondage to sin and so people are like, well, there is human free will. I can I can take and drop my phone, okay? Like I just chose to do that. And it's like there might be that in a sense, sure. Like that is a thing that you can make choices or whatever in, in this sense, in this sphere right here. But ultimately, there isn't like a human free will in which I can decide my ultimate destiny because that choice that I made is being made in a in a sphere or in a reality of sin um, and I I think that's no one is really no one would think of it that way but like there is no human free will ultimately the illustration that is just kind of going through my head talking about like you know, the earlier illustration of someone saving someone else. Imagine the person that needs saving is suicidal and they don't want to be rescued. But it's... So... Someone reaching out a hand to rescue them is going to get denied every time. But we have a good savior that refuses to let us hurt ourselves. And instead of throwing out a flotation ring and telling us to rely on us to swim to that ring so he can pull us up he jumps down there and grabs us and pulls us out um I don't it's not that we just ended up in danger it's that we run to it you know, we, are, we are that suicidal person that doesn't want to be rescued and it sounds morbid but that's our situation and we need and we have someone that loves us despite that darkness and refuses to let us just sit there and drown in it and will pull us out whether we like it or not and I thank God for that sure um also I don't I mean I don't I think the idea works I don't know how y'all will feel about it but um before you are saved, you're indeed a slave to your your sin, right? And then after you're saved, you become a slave 
to Christ in a sense. So, like, if he is, in a sense, our master and our Lord, we just don't get to run away from him. Like, period. That's not how that relationship works. There's a reason why that uh, that picture is drawn, I think. That reminds me of a quote by Charles Spurgeon talking about the idea of free will. And I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but in essence, it's will I have heard of, but I have never seen it free. It is always either captive to sin or to the God that rescued it from sin. And I think that's kind of where the argument hinges is human will exists, but calling it free is kind of a misnomer. Because our will is always enslaved to either our sin nature or our renewed spirit. It's either the flesh or the spirit. And before salvation, we're always, I mean, we're, we're, our bend is toward the flesh, toward sin. But because we're renewed by God, by Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, then we truly do have a sense of freedom in our will. From that point on, we can... We, we have the ability to not be enslaved to the sin, we now have the ability to to respond in obedience and love and holiness. Um, so, I don't know, I, I think it's a, a bit of a semantic issue is where that debate lies a lot of the time, because what do you mean by free? Because if you mean like just free to choose, then those choices aren't free. But if we're talking that it's free from a form of bondage, then yes, absolutely. Right, and <clears throat> it does really come down to a semantic argument much of the time. Um, for example, I don't. I have never heard anyone argue against irresistible grace who has resisted grace. So when someone says grace can be resisted, I'm tempted to just say, well, prove it. <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> I mean, really, really though, I mean, the, the people making this argument are the ones who have themselves, you know, at least in their minds, submitted to Christ. So, I do want to make a clarification um, and I, I think it's important to to make this clarification because we can get the impression that this doctrine says that it's a it's a one I hate this phrase but it's a one and done kind of thing where like like every conversion is the um, the Paul story where God just shows up guns blazing and instantly they're converted. Or not. Or or not. Like he knocks and then it's like okay bye. <laughs> so the the doctrine is that you do not ultimately and finally resist grace. There are plenty of people who have wrestled with the spirit. Jacob wrestled with God. There are plenty of people who have wrestled but 
there's only been one that wins every time in that story. I myself remember feeling the spirit convicting me. I was nine years old. And again, that, this is a, another great example because I distinctly remember before being regenerate. I knew all of this stuff. Pretty much the same stuff I know now, except I know it a lot deeper. I knew all the Bible stories. I knew all about Jesus. I knew more about Jesus than most of the people at my church. Because I was just an eager beaver, reading everything there was in Scripture to read. But it meant nothing to me. I, I remember the feeling of it meaning nothing to me. And I also remember the feeling, the knowing, that, that God was convicting me of my sin for the first time and making me aware of my need for a savior for the first time. I was very aware of other people's need for a savior, <laughs> but it became abundantly clear to me of my own wretchedness and my own need, and I resisted that at first. But honestly for me, it lasted about three days before I, I, I just couldn't stand it and in a show of humility for me um, I had a, a relative who understood far less um, about the Bible than I did and he was he was about the same age as me understood far less was not known for being an intellectual person. He simply heard the word of God and he trusted and he believed. Uh, this was a, one of your classic revival scenarios. And the first day, this was his first event like that. The first day he heard the gospel message of Christ. Very simple. And immediately he just trusted and he followed. I heard the same message and it convicted me as well. I'd heard that message hundreds of times before because I grew up in church. But it pricked me for the first time. And I resisted. I was prideful. I didn't want to admit to the whole church that I was a sinner. That I did things wrong. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Plot twist. Because I'll have you know that I was winning for having memorized the most Bible verses that year <laughs> already. But two, three days later, somewhere before that week was done, I couldn't stand it any longer. And it was particularly humbling for me because my mother was the pianist, and this was during the invitation. And so when I got up and I walked down the aisle, because yes, I walked down the aisle, it was that kind of thing, the, everything stopped in the entire church, because my mom was a pianist. I, they were probably playing um, either Just As I Am or I've Decided to Follow Jesus. It was one of those. Maybe it was Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. <laughs> Whatever it was, it stopped. And the whole place was completely silent. Which means 
that everybody was looking at me in that whole entire church. But I couldn't help it. That was the last thing that I wanted to do as far as putting myself out there and having everybody look at me, but I couldn't help it. I, if, I, if I had a freedom of will in that scenario, I would never have chosen to embarrass myself like that. So, I believe that yes, when you feel the conviction of the Spirit, that's a sign that He is regenerating your heart, and you may buck up against that for a while. But you will not win. If you belong to Christ, you will not win. That is the message of Scripture. Which is a glorious thing. Why would we want it to be otherwise? I mean, can we have that conversation for a minute? Who, why would we, why would we want that to be the case? Which, you know, caveat, our doctrine should not be based on what we want. That's not how we arrive at a sound doctrine. But additionally, why would we want that? Why would we want it to be up to us? I really wonder if it is like where it originated. I mean, obviously it originates obviously in, in not not very good doctrine, but I wonder if it has been like propagated since that time by well-meaning people. Because I think because when people put emphasis on you have to make that decision, you have to, you know, um, you have to get right with God, or you have to get saved, or you whatever. Those people are not coming at that from a malicious or, or bad standpoint. They're just wrong. <laughs> I feel like it's mostly just bad wording and not knowing how to address right. it. And that's the simplest way, and just from that, aside from freaking Jacob all the way back when against Calvin, was just like, well, I'm gonna do everything the exact opposite. But oh, good old Jacobus. <laughs> uh, other than that, but uh, yeah, I think, like I said, just a lot of bad wording probably because it is true that we are sinful and that we, if we don't have Jesus then we need Jesus you need to be saved you know that if if you don't want to go to hell and feel the wrath of God then yes you need to be saved in that sense um and I, yeah I just feel like they just don't ever find a good way to word it well there's also again I think we've discussed this before but um you know we we live in a codependent society and so there's part of that too that if I share the gospel with someone especially if I have labored for a long time in sharing the gospel with someone I want to be able to put that on them because I want to be able to say why won't you just accept the gospel won't you just trust in Jesus? 
won't you come? Won't you come? <laughs> won't you come? I mean, I get it. I get that mentality because if you've extended that gospel invitation, which biblically we are told to do, I know that that's it kind of messes with your mind a little bit because we believe that it is God who saves and it's the Spirit who draws, but we are also told biblically, like, this is how the gospel is presented in Scripture as an invitation to everyone. And so in that gap, in that disconnect, is where we feel uncomfortable. And so naturally, being depraved, we want to insert ourselves into that process and beg. And instead of begging the one who is able to change, we beg the person. Won't you please accept Christ? Please trust it. Please accept the gospel. Please. And we do that out of mostly good intentions. I know that there are others who do that to get their numbers up and for other reasons, but I give most people the benefit of the doubt. We do that because we want, we desperately want to see them converted. We want to see them following Christ. <clears throat> and so, it feels like we're doing something when we're begging them. And then when it doesn't happen, it's easy to just push that off on them and say, well, it's because they just wouldn't take it. And that culture of guilt tripping, basically, is what it feels like most of the time. Uh, it leads people to, I won't say 100% of the time, because obviously Dusty gave his story, and that probably happened. I'm sure he was like, won't you come? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, um, so, like... There is good that has come from that, but it, I feel like it ends up hurting people more and giving them some kind of false hope more because it's like, oh, I, I went and did the thing. I came when the preacher told me to, you know, it was like, come down the aisle, you know. It, and then we end up with people who think they're saved, and then because of embarrassment, again, like, because nobody wants to experience embarrassment, they're not going to most of the time uh, well they will eventually if it is real salvation that they're experiencing um, but they're not going to want to come back down the aisle and admit that I, they were wrong uh, yeah yeah and, and that is an issue because that actually feeds back into the argument that people have against irresistible, irresistible grace because they see people and, and also the next point as well but they see people resist grace. Like, they, they see people go down and, and make this decision, and then a year, a few years, or several years later, they've completely turned away. They show no signs of regeneration at all. And people say, well, look, you know, so-and-so did the thing. Yeah. And look at them now. Like, obviously, we, we do have the will to, to turn away or to say no. Um, we have, it's our responsibility as the church to actually pour into people's lives and make sure 
in a loving way, like through through actually caring. But to see that what has happened wasn't just an, an emotional response to a sermon that was delivered eloquently with really good music that pricked at the emotions of the congregation, but instead was a supernatural working by the Holy Spirit that regenerated that person's life. Um, that comes through community and not, not just the not just a good choir or a good band that'll get someone down the aisle. Um, that takes a change in our whole church culture. But it's one that we have to make. I mean, because like I said, I, when, it, when it comes to true doctrine, like our bad doctrine is reinforcing itself.